Welcome to Leverage Masters, airing weekly on Tuesdays at 12 Eastern and on demand on iTunes and Blog Talk Radio. Leverage Masters hosts Jack Humphrey and Gina Gaudio-Graves discuss leverage strategy with guest leveragists. Be sure to subscribe to Leverage Masters in your favorite podcatcher for great tips and case studies on using leverage to achieve your biggest goals much faster. Welcome to Leverage Masters. I am your co-host, Gina Gaudio-Graves, and along with my uh, all-around partner, Jack Humphrey, we are the co-founders of TheLeveragists.com and Divisio.com. <clears throat> How are you, Jack? I'm sorry, I was on mute. How come you couldn't hear me? <laughs> I don't know. Great. Has it finally warmed up in southern Indiana? Heck no. It was uh, below freezing today. <laughs> it's April what? My mom, had, it's, my mom had two inches of snow in Chicago yesterday. It's it's crazy. It's global weirding. It's going to be 100 in it, Phoenix today. I mean, it's just it was, strange what's happening. It was 90 here yesterday. Wow. We'd like a little bit of that weather, please. (laughs) Stuff's trying to grow up here. Your room's ready for you anytime you want to borrow it. (laughs) Uh. So we have over 350 episodes of Leverage Masters now. And, you know, with all that great content, Jack, it's a shame that we don't get more opportunities to share some of it with our listeners to hear fresh. So who do we have lined up as a replay today? We have none other than the infamous Brett Ridgeway. I thought that would be a great one to run again. That's a great idea. Well, let's go to it. And Jack and I will be back live next week, same time, same place. Have a great week, everybody, and here's Brett Ridgway. Welcome to Leverage Masters, airing weekly on Tuesdays at 12 Eastern and on demand on iTunes and Blog Talk Radio. Leverage Masters hosts Jack Humphrey and Gina Gaudio-Graves discuss leverage strategy with guest leveragists. Be sure to subscribe to Leverage Masters in your favorite podcatcher for great tips and case studies on using leverage to achieve your biggest goals much faster. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of Leverage Masters. I am your co-host, Gina Gaudio-Graves, the co-founder of TheLeverages.com and Divisio.com, the all-new affiliate platform for people doing good. We have a fantastic show lined up for you guys. One of my good friends and someone that I've known for many, many years. We have my co-host, Jack Humphrey, joining us as well, my all-around partner in crime. Hello, Jack. Hello. How are you in sunny Florida? I am really good. It's beautiful out here today. It has to be. That's what the brochure says about Florida. So it's kind of like the uh, but we're, we're almost in our rainy season, so any day now we're going to have our nasty weather for a few months. 
<laughs> anyway, why don't you tell everybody about our fantastic guest for today? Yes, I can't wait. This is uh we're hitting legendary status here. I think anybody who's been online for as long as this guy doing as many awesome huge things that he has done and since I'm handing out the titles anyway, I'm going to use legend status. This is uh today we have Brad Ridgeway. He's the co-founder of Speaker Fulfillment Services and several other companies that serve speakers, authors, and information marketers. His unique behind-the-scenes perspective as the go-to fulfillment guy for many of the biggest names in Internet and information marketing lets him see what works and what doesn't work. He's a co-author of five books in this niche, with the most recent being The ABCs of Speaking. And do we have Brett now? I think we do. Brett, are you with us? Well, I wonder Come who on, that Brett. is if that's, if that's not Brett. I am going to try to get him on my other line in a way that does not make you have to sit here listening to music like so often happens. Let's see if <laughs> I can do that. Fingers crossed. Digitally. Yeah, right? <laughs> okay. See if I can get him. It looks like he's here. So, Brett, I'm thinking you're self-muted because it sure looks like you're here. The right phone number anyway. Let's see if I can grab him, Jack. You can tap dance for a minute. All right. So, of course, you guys can't answer because you're just listening, but what have you been doing lately with the in terms of leverage for your business? A lot of times we keep our heads down and we just push forward and we're focused on a goal and we're focused mainly, usually, on music and guitar and playing music and, and listening to music while we do radio shows. And... <laughs> Are you back, Gina? I am back, okay. and as I suspected, he was here. I don't know why he couldn't. He could hear us. We just couldn't hear him. So he's hanging up and calling back in on his cell phone. Got it. We were just talking about leverage. Can you believe I that? I know. I was we listening. We never talk about leverage. <laughs> I think we might have talk- Brett Ridgeway now. Hey, guys, can you hear me now? Yay! There he is. Yes, we can. All right. Well, I don't know what's going on with my phone or Ball Talk Radio, but I was there. I promised I really was. So how are you? How are, how are you <laughs> and Jack today? And you were here way early, even. I was there plenty of time. I, you know, I, I, I host a lot of webinars, and I, I – you know, I get nervous when people aren't on there a couple of minutes beforehand, so I always sign in early so people know I'm good to go. So. <laughs> well, Brad, well, we were going to have the interview with you. Looking forward to having you here today. So I'm going to let Jack take it away and get you started with the same question we ask every guest here on Leverage Masters. Go ahead, Jack. So, Brett. There's been so yes, many mornings in your career as a very successful uh, online entrepreneur, but on this particular day, 
what is getting you out of bed these days, this this morning? What's been the thing that's just been burning in your belly, excited to greet the day these days? I'm a project person by and large, and right now, actually, my current project is we're kind of overhauling a lot of our internal processes, and I'm working on shipping department documentation. I know it sounds exciting, but it's like wow, when you're you know when you got a company and you got people doing things, and you just realize that man, this is not as standardized as it should be. It's like all right, let's get this documented. So I get excited by going in and doing that kind of stuff. Actually, so I'm actually. Writing shipping department documentation today. Exciting stuff, huh? That was that's a first. I mean, I like originality, and that is definitely an original uh, for for the burning belly question. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, so you know, this is Leverage Masters and everything, and and I know you know a little bit about leverage. You've been buddies with me and Gina, especially for many, 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 many years, and. Um, you've been leveraging pretty much, well, since I've met you long ago, uh, doing speaker fulfillment services. And, um, man, being in a really, really unique position among uh, all of the, the thing, you know, hosting events would be the next other thing, I would think, would be as leveraged a position as being the guy and the company in the back of the room that gets to see all the marketers, all the businesses, um, and making all of those connections, they all connect through you in, in the various ways that you conduct business. That's got to be one heck of a, a piece of leverage that you've always carried around and, and used, I'm sure, uh, to your benefit over the years. Well, there's no doubt, Jack, that the leverage is truly in the relationships. And if you're going to succeed in business, you got to just get out. you got to get out to live events and meet people and establish those relationships face-to-face. I mean, we were very blessed early in the game to be in a position where a lot of people who were the movers and shakers in the information marketing industry were colleagues of ours, and so we were getting referrals from big-name people almost from the get-go. And Mm -hmm. you just can't buy that kind of leverage. It's about meeting people and establishing relationships without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, and I just love that uh, all roads go through you. You're kind of the gatekeeper uh, in so many ways, the way that your business model works. But you also have seen so many people come up, you know, you've met so many people, your networks are really big and large and healthy and everything, so it gives you that vantage point. What are some things that you've noticed over the years that people have done not having the ability, you know, there can only be one speaker fulfillment services, at least per event, right? And so you've kind of got that nailed down, but other businesses have to do what you just said, um, that it's really important to do. What are some interesting things you've seen people do over the years, maybe one person or a group of people, when they've been using uh, that networking opportunity to do something really big for their business, to get to that next level, to do, you know, uh, to come out of nowhere, as they say, which nobody ever does because everybody works their butts off for a long time before usually more people get to know them and they think they just appeared on the scene. But you get to watch a lot of people using leverage. What's what's that like? What's What are some examples of things that have really impressed you over the years? Well, by and large, people that are names you know in the industry, uh, you know, the Ryan Pices, the Armand Morns, the Alec Mondozians, the Bicycle Saints, et cetera, I mean, they're doers. I mean, they're action takers. Do they do it perfectly all the time? Certainly not but they're swinging all the time. And, and most people are just afraid to put themselves out there, Jack. So 
so they don't do nearly enough marketing. They're not nearly proactive enough in trying to make things happen. And a lot of people who come online, for example, think that you can really run a sitting behind your computer and not getting out there. And, I mean, it's one of the things you just can't hammer on enough. You've got to get out to live events and meet people in your niche because they will become your biggest supporters, your biggest affiliates, your biggest colleagues, collaborators, whatever you want to call it, because you have that personal relationship. I mean, there's one of the things that, you know, I think our backstory will shed a little light on this, some, Zach. So can I can I can I take a minute to give you a little yeah, bit of backstory? Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. So way back in like 1992 or 93, a little storm rolled through uh, Florida called Hurricane Andrew. So you know Gina was talking about the stormy season coming up or whatever. So this is one of those storms that made a massive impact on Florida. So. As a result of that hurricane, and a famous worker you know very well, the late Gary Hybert put on an event called the Hurricane Andrews Seminar. And so it was mm-hmm. a fundraiser for victims of the hurricane. So I was fortunate enough to attend that event with my mentor at that time. We got to meet a lot of people in the you know the pre-internet age of information marketing. So you know Ted Nicholas, Carl Galetti, Brad and Alan Anton, and other people that I know you're familiar with. But as a result of that particular event, one of the guys I met there was a guy named Carl Galetti. And Carl had an, a marketing book catalog of old, hard-to-find marketing books or whatever. So for whatever reason, he wanted to get rid of that. So we made a joint venture as a result of that relationship where we took over the old, hard-to-find marketing book catalog. And it's still online today to a certain extent, so 20-some years later or whatever. But as a result of that chance meeting with Carl at that Hurricane Andrew event, that led to that joint venture, which led to him when he did his first Internet Marketing Super Conference in 1999, I believe it was, at Las Vegas Hilton, he called me up and asked me if I had handled the backroom sales table for him. Well, frankly, Jack, I didn't even know what back of the room meant at that time, but I hadn't been to Las Vegas before, (laughs) so it sounded good to me, so I went out there and, and attended that particular event. And at that first event in 1999, I, that's where I met Alex Mondozian. And so, obviously, a lot of people who speak at events, as you know, put on their own events. So we started to do the back of the room for more people as a regular service because it's frankly a hassle if you're a promoter to handle that part of, the, of a, an event. And so we got to start to know a lot of people in the industry. And those relationships led to, in about, oh gosh, I think it was 2002, Jim Edwards cornered me at an event. It was a Carl Gladi event, actually, again, in Vegas. And he said, hey, Brett, I knew you're doing some product fulfillment for yourself because at the time I actually put up the first portal website in the plant engineering and maintenance industry back in, like, 1995, com. So we were selling a lot of books and videotapes and all that aimed at that particular niche. So we were shipping a lot of product. So Jim cornered me at an event and said, hey, Brett, you know, I know you do fulfillment. We handle some fulfillment for me, and I've been thinking about it for a while because it was a natural outgrowth of all the relationships I had established in the industry. So he said, what the heck, let's put speaker fulfillment service together and see what we can do with it. And so you know, here we are 15 years later still helping authors, speakers, and info marketers, you know, get their products into the hands of their customers so they can focus on the things that are truly most important like marketing, speaking, product creation, et cetera. 
So, I mean, you can see through that whole story, it's all about relationships, and none of it would have happened, and I certainly wouldn't be talking with you today were it not for the leverage power of relationships. It's really true. I didn't even know that story, Jack, and as it turns out, where I met you first, Brett, was when you were doing back-of-the-room sales for a Carl Galetti event in 2004, which is how I knew about your services when I put on my first event in 2007 and had you do my back-of-the-room sales as well. Holy cow. Send us that was Ohio. at the now-demolished Sahara, wasn't it? <laughs> I don't think, I think it was. The Sahara, but... Pretty much every other property has been touched. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was He's one that Carl was like one of, the, one of the last Internet marketing conferences at the Sahara Riviera. or something like that. And it, it was at the Riviera. Rivi- okay. I just thought, man, we must have really rocked the house there. They had to demolish that whole casino after we got done <laughs> with it. So, Yeah. Oh, I, I like that. I, it brings up a lot of memories, actually. I can't even imagine what back of the room was like when you first started. I mean, did you have a, a merchant account and things like that, or were you just taking checks and stuff? I mean, how how old school well, was it? You know, kind of all of the above. I mean, it was the old chunk of terminals where you'd swipe the card with the triplicate form and have them uh-huh. just fill in stuff. I mean, we weren't processing anything live at the from the – Get go. Uh, I mean, yeah, checks, cash, you name it, we'll take your money. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were, we, you know, most most people who put on it that you've got to have a special category of merchant account who's going to process a large amount of money in a short period of time, and their merchant accounts aren't yeah. set up for that. So we were contracted because we had special um, special merchant account that allowed us to process multiple speakers and large volume of money in a short period of time. So, I mean, there's events where we're processing three-quarters of a million dollars or more in an event, and the average guy on the street can't just call up his merchant account and say, hey, I'm doing an event, I'm going to run, you know, 50 or 100 times my normal volume account in three days. You know, that's a bigger yeah. flag for merchant account providers. So we were fortunate that we could provide an account that could handle the money, and basically – there's so much involved on the back end in terms of deferred payments and making sure the speakers are paid and making sure the promoters pay. That I mean, it's a lot more work than most people think, Frank. Um, and that's why some promoters who are, are willing to bring in an external party to handle that for them because they simplistic. Yeah. Well, uh, back to the, you know, when you were telling that story, I was thinking about all of the times that I've watched things materialize in my own business and other people's businesses and that networking situation. And a lot of times when you were describing how you got started, you didn't certainly have everything together. Like you didn't prepare for Jim to come up to you and say, I need you to do this big thing, I'm sure. I mean, I think you were, you were your mindset was there and it looks like we're into this. This might be an interesting thing to do ongoing uh, after all the Carl stuff. But you certainly didn't have – you were out there networking before you had everything just totally nailed down. And I see a lot of people doing the opposite in business these days is they, they spend a lot of time 
with all the stuff that you can certainly put together after you've networked and made a deal and done all these things. But I think people like to over-prepare for things that really won't even matter until you make that deal, until you make that connection and exercise that leverage point. There's no point in being too overly prepared. Do you see uh, much of that uh, these days as well? Yeah, I agree with you, Jack. I mean, I think it was a situation where we had been pondering that there was an opportunity there for a while but hadn't taken the next step until that tipping point where a known name in the industry approached us about doing that specific thing that we've been thinking about. And so that kind of pushed it over the edge. But, I mean, there's so many factors that converge when you make a big decision like that. I mean, like I said, here we are 15 years later filming and if you told me in 2000 that I would be a you know a bread and butter meat potato type business guy running a fulfillment company, I'd say yeah you're nuts. Uh, <laughs> but you know situations led to the development of, of what we have now and where we're at. You know there's yeah. a lot of not to oversimp. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of joy in from the behind-the-scenes aspect of, of seeing people succeed and seeing those authors and those speakers and marketers have success. And so, I mean, we have yeah. a couple thousand clients worldwide, and to see the impact that they're having on people, and knowing that we're just playing a small part in that kind of behind-the-scenes is very satisfying. So, Yeah. Yeah, and, and really, you know, not to oversimplify it or anything, but it was just a, it's just a matter of showing up. More than anything, it was just a matter of um, being in the right place at the right time, but not to say that it's luck. You put yourself in the right place at the right time. might have been a little bit of luck, but you increase your odds of luck happening when you do things like that, right? <laughs> when you get out there and see what's going on and then tell people a little bit about what you're doing, what you're interested in, and you know, it's, I mean, sure, this has happened for Gina and you, and it certainly happened for me, that people just glom onto that. It's like, man, this is if this is the thing, this your connection with me or my connection with you on this event is what I think it is. It'll be worth the whole cost of the flight and the, the event, the trip, and everything else. I mean, that's you know that usually is the story that people tell when they have that kind of networking history. They have that well, and then this happened, and I met this guy or this gal, and everything changed from there. Yeah, it's really amazing, and you just never know what's going to lead to what. I mean, I look back at things that have happened over the years, and it's one of those things where you can trace a specific path in hindsight, obviously. But at the time, you just never know what's going to lead to what. When I met Alec Mondozian in 1999 at that event, you know, that led to relationships that still 20 years later are a source of referral business for our company. And we built an entire company almost entirely off of word of mouth, which, you know, that that's powerful leverage there is having people who are supporters of yours talking the talk for you. And, you know, it's been a great ride. I can't, you know, no question about it. So, you know, one of those things that what I think about, Jack, uh, obviously, is, you know, let's say you're a speaker and author for information marketer, and we're talking about leverage today, obviously. One of the things that you've got to decide fairly early in the game if you're trying to build a business in that particular niche is how you can amplify your efforts. In other words, what are the things that you should be doing 
yourself? Are, are you a, you know, do you value your time at $10 an hour, 20 50 100 I mean, if you're spending your time doing $10 an hour tasks, then probably you're not going to build your business the way that you would like to build it because you're spending so much time doing the business rather than working on the business, you know, the old Michael Gerber e-myth thing. So when you look at things like the services that a company like ours provides, well, you know, I kind of encourage people initially that they should maybe do their own product fulfillment, but they're learning pretty not use of their time. And if they don't amplify their time, leverage their time by outsourcing this thing that aren't, you know, worthy of their fifty, a hundred, two hundred, five hundred dollar an hour rate, then they're going to significantly limit what they can accomplish as a business. And business amplifiers can be a lot more things than outsourcing. I mean, you can leverage your hiring a team, you know, a VA. You can get new software, or a new computer system, a number of things you can use as business amplifiers. Right. And do a bigger business. You've got to figure out what those various things are that you can do, whether it's get it off your plate or whatever it may be, that will truly help you leverage yourself more massively. Yeah. I think a lot of people got enamored and still do to this day. They get enamored with the idea that there's a lot of leverage in tools and free services. I mean, you can get on YouTube and and do an incredible amount toward building a business, but they forget that at some point when you start selling things, when you start getting paid for consulting or coaching or whatever, you you used all of that initial leverage only supposedly to a point, and then you know a real business starts to materialize, and real businesses have expenses. So if you didn't in the beginning start thinking about, well, I'll do this for now, but I'm going to need fulfillment help later, and that's going to be an expense, and that's going to be a percentage of every product sale that I make. Um, I'm planning for that, but I hear, I, I feel like there's some people who don't plan for that, and they're like, they expect the way that they started and bootstrapped their business to be the way that it always is in terms of expenses and what you do to uh, plug in those business amplifiers that you were talking about. It comes as a shock to some people why they plateau out at that level. Uh, but not to me, and I'm certainly <laughs> certainly not to you, I bet. You know, there's an opportunity cost in anything that you do, and you've always got to look at what that opportunity cost is. And, again, if you're spending your time doing something that's worth $10 an hour, then you're not doing those things that you really should be doing, and you will limit your business. I mean, there's a reason I'm not out on the production floor, you know, putting binders together or duplicating this because <laughs> it's not the proper application of my time and effort. So Yeah. What are what are some of the more striking things as you look back, even just on recent years, from twenty ten, twenty twelve uh forward, what uh what's changed in the business of of information and consulting, uh technology, delivery, fulfillment, uh card processing uh, funding sources, what what strikes you as some of the, the, like, I can't believe that where I started and where I am now, I'd be working with tools like this? Well, certainly the business has changed significantly over the last several years. I mean, when we first got into the business, Jack and Gene, as you know, the concept of the what we call the big box package was alive and well. And so mm-hmm. when somebody put together an information product, it typically would have 
you know, a couple manuals, 10 or 12 CDs and DVDs, this, that, you name it. You know, the big box would arrive at somebody's house. Well, certainly, by and large, the day of the big box has passed in the information marketing space. Smart marketers still recognize the value of having physical product, but they've honed it down considerably. So they've taken a, a good portion of maybe what they had printed out or put on a disk before, and now they put that inside a membership area and then just select some key components to deliver in physical format. I mean, people still like the thud factor some and like the tangibility of a physical product because there's a perceived value issue that you always have to deal with. But the days of the massive boxes with all the components, pretty much gone. So now you might just see one binder, you know, a handful of discs, two to four maybe, and so it's honed down considerably. Another thing I think that's changed is the economies of scale in terms of pricing has gone down considerably. Where it was fairly common, as you know, a year, at events years ago to have 2000 $2,500, $5,000 price points, you hardly ever see that anymore. Most people are in the $500 to $1,000 range in terms of prices of product and services for that live events. So the price scale has slid down considerably. Now, things go a little bit sickly and all that. I mean, several years ago, there was a massive push. Now, I'll just do it all digitally because then it doesn't cost me anything to deliver. Well, people realized fairly quickly that that was pretty much a mistake because they had trained their list to expect things to be delivered to them in a certain format, and that format that they had been trained on was there's a physical aspect of this product. I mean, there were people who were doing magazines or newsletters and say, well, I'll just do it all digital now because it'll save me a lot of money. And then they start subscribers dropping like flies. You know, the list went down and all down. So they realized that it was hurting them not having that physical component. So the industry swung back a little bit more towards having physical aspect in some way. But, again, the, the day of the big box pretty much pretty much has gone away. Um, yeah. Gosh, what else has gone and changed? So, uh, man, there's so many things that happen. What about processing? What about the tools for for uh, uh, just all the different ways? I mean, you started out having to, you know, do the little. Uh, I don't even remember what that machine was called, but the triplicate machine and everything else. And I mean, since then, just a huge new universe of the ability to pay people, get paid by people, um, you know, the, the ways that we can exchange. I mean, now we can even, I don't know if you guys are into this yet, but uh, businesses, some businesses are accepting Bitcoin even, cryptocurrency and stuff. And it's just wild how, you know, it was so restrictive in the beginning. Banks didn't know what to do with people like you who sold uh, or facilitated the sales and delivery of digital and, and physical goods um, from the Internet and things like that. And that's why it was so hard in the beginning. Nobody could get a merchant account because they were so restrictive that, you know, very few of us were even prepared to have all of the things in line to, to qualify for something. And uh, and then, you know, things like PayPal started coming out and stuff like that. But what, what kind of amazes you now about um, – uh, the way payments are done, the way people are able to do commerce on online um, and offline. Well, but certainly, really, yeah, it's certainly has changed. changed significantly. If you look at it from the event standpoint, Jack, I mean, the old Kachuk terminals are obviously no longer part of it. 
and we don't do a ton of live events anymore in terms of the back of the room. So technologies have advanced probably past even what we do. I know you can, you know, if you have with your merchant account, and they have the ability to set up pre-programmed things for that, and it's just a matter of hitting buttons on an iPad or whatever, to, and then have them sign the screen and all that. I mean, certainly those technologies have come a long way. One thing that we were never able to fully figure out how to do, Jack, because to take advantage of a lot of the new technologies, really speed up things into the back of the room, you need to be able to pre-program all the offers and all that into the system ahead of time. And we were doing multi-speaker events where you might have 10, 15, 20, 25 different speakers, and the ability to get them to share with you ahead of time what their offer was going to be for an event so that you could pre-program for that proved to be a real challenge, to be honest with you. So we were never able to fully leverage all that because we couldn't find out what the offers were ahead of time. I mean, many of the speakers make it up on the fly based on the crowd, what other speakers are offering, et cetera. And so certainly the technologies, again, have come a long way. But uh, it's it's pretty amazing what you can do now, whether it's with Stripe or, you know, you plug the damn what do they call the thing? I'm drawing a blank, but you know, you plug it right into your iPhone or whatever, so you can swipe a card and do it right there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. So. I mean, it's gotten to the point where uh, you know you you've had to adjust over the years because of those kinds of things. Maybe a lot of speakers, a lot of organizers of events, came to think that maybe they could handle back of the room. I would imagine you've you've you know. You were on the circuit for a while with a few regular events that you always would have, and maybe somebody kind of thought, well, this makes it seem so easy. I think I'm going to just try to do back room myself. Did that ever come up? Well, it certainly has because you've got to remember that people are paying a percentage of their sales to us as a company to handle the back room and manage this thing. So when people get to running the numbers, I think, well, maybe I'll just figure out a way to do this myself because I don't want to give up the – Five thousand or ten thousand or whatever, and somebody else coming and processing money for me. And then they found out how difficult, like we talked about before, and stuff like that. And the real danger being that you don't have a properly classified merchant account to enable you to do that. I mean, let me tell you a story several years ago. This isn't necessarily with a live event, but a, a, a client of ours was doing a product launch. And it was in the Forex market. We have a lot of clients in the Forex market because that's a market with a lot of churn, and so these people can come out with a new product almost every month. So they're always launching new products continually in this market. Well, this company came out with a new Forex product and launched on a certain day, and about three or four hours in, their merchant account was shut in because they had neglected to call ahead of time their merchant account provider and say, hey, we're doing a product launch and we're going to be running more than normal through the system. Just wanted you to be aware. And in most cases, if you contact the time, the merchant account provider is fine and dealing with it all. But if somebody starts running back and back through your account that they weren't aware of, it's a big red flag to them, obviously, and they'll shut you down. So this company probably lost three or $400,000 worth of funds and they had to pick up the and call their merchant account provider. So... I mean, there's just all sorts of things like you need to be aware of that, whether it's an event or a product launch or whatever. You got to watch out for and make sure you're really ready to go. Yeah, 
You know, I'd be remiss in talking to somebody like you and not asking you one of the most important questions I could to get some pretty valuable intel out for our listeners. Because you process and you deal with so many companies and all of that, and you alluded a little bit to it earlier, but I can't let you go unless I ask this question, which is what's selling right now? Like what you talked about the big box stuff and the thunk factor, that kind of stuff has changed, but in terms of the the quality and the kind of stuff that you see, and of course it's it's different for other people, but you see an awful lot of activity. What in 2017 is really the kind of delivery of, of, of the package, whatever that might be, through membership sites and things like that? Can you talk a little bit more in detail about what's really selling right now from your perspective, yeah, of I'm course? Gonna, sure. There, there's two ways to look at that, and one is in terms of what the niche is, and there are some niches out there, Jack, that continue to crank out product after product. And, again, Forex, foreign exchange currency, is one of those particular niches. So anything to do with how to make money in some way, whether it's real estate or Forex or the stock market or whatever, still pretty much are good sellers these days. Again, because there's what we call a lot of churn in the market, and new people are always entering looking for that type of information. So... The niche is one standpoint. In terms of the packaging, what we're seeing again is a combination more of the physical and digital together with the physical component being honed down. Now, people always ask me, Jack, are you, you know, with computers not having disk drives on these days, are you still doing CDs and DVDs? And I mean, the answer is we still do a ton of CDs and DVDs, but some of it depends on the niche. And let me give you an example. Uh, we have a client who has a a dance fitness DVD. Well, think about the market in that standpoint. How would they want to consume that information? Well, they're going to want to plug it into their TV and follow along and do the workout watching their TV, not looking at their little computer screen. So that for that particular niche, having a DVD still makes a lot of sense hmm. because the consumable aspect is there in terms of how people want to take advantage of the product. Other products... We started to see some people move over to flash drives, certainly. And the biggest thing that you need to be aware of when dealing with flash drives is a packaging option. But number one, out of sight, out of mind. I mean, you get this little flash drive and it's like throw it in your drawer and you never find it or see it again. But number two is the whole issue of perceived value, which is still very critical in the information marketing space. I mean, if people mm-hmm. pay several hundred dollars or more for product and yet get this little flash drive, even though you and I both conceptually understand the value is in the content, not you know whether it's on a drive, printed out, on a disc, whatever, they see that little flash drive and say, I paid $500 for that? I mean, what's up with that? <laughs> so you've got to dress up the packaging even on a flash drive, whether you put it into a presentation tin or a DVD-style case or something that makes it look more significant so that you don't have that incongruency between the packaging and the the content that you're delivering to the customer. So flash drives are going yeah. to continue to grow, certainly, but you've got to be aware of those factors in terms of how you package them so you don't create unhappy customers. Uh, you know, With any product that you're doing, you've got to be thinking of, first and foremost, how does my market primarily wish to consume this product? We still do a ton of CDs because people have transit time and they want to listen to that CD in their car. 
So you want to have that ability to have that product in that particular mode for people that want to consume it that way. I mean, we actually, I calculated this a month ago or so, but we probably last year produced 15,000 more discs than we did the year before. So discs are still alive and well. Well, they go away eventually, certainly. I mean, we recognize that, and we're setting up the capabilities to do flash drives internally here. But it's one of those things where it isn't going away anytime soon, and as an information marketer, you truly need to look at how does my market wish to primarily consume my information, whether they're an auditory learner, whether they're a visual learner, whether a reader, whether they're a kinesthetic learner, and they want hands-on live workshops or whatever. And obviously, the more modes that you can offer to your customers, typically the more you'll be able to sell. But you really got to analyze what they're wanting and, and match up what you're capable of doing with them as much as possible. Yeah. Do you have any recommendations for how somebody might go about that without developing too much of a migraine? Because a lot of people are are, are aware of all of the options. Like. And then there's options they are still not even aware of, just what they're aware of, how I can deliver my content, how I can deliver my product. There's just a lot of ways that I see people out there doing that. Um, you know, another, another thing about the, the, you were saying that the flash drive has a, a value perception problem. Uh, another one that I would say that probably has the same type of problem is that people are going straight to Facebook private groups. And since people can already belong to those things, you really have to build it up and, and package that to say, look, this is kind of like my membership area. What, what would tor- you know, traditionally be a membership area? And you've got to explain to them what the value is on the inside of that thing. And uh, Facebook and, and YouTube and private membership sites and all that kind of stuff, I mean, how do people, how have, how have you seen people discover what their audience uh, really likes and, and, and wants to consume, especially people who haven't delivered in that space yet? And they're just, they just don't know. They're just taking a guess. Well, you know, they always talk about avatars in the business, and you definitely need to define your principal you know, customer avatar, so to speak. And market research is the name of the game in terms of answering your question, really. I mean, you need to see what others are offering in the marketplace and what are their deliverables, how are they doing it. And in one sense, you know, when when they zig, you should zag. But by and large, you want to follow what the market is doing in terms of the offerings. For example, uh, I mean, you're well familiar with Armin Morn or whatever. He had a, a theory called mm-hmm. Whitey, you know, you, then, them. So when the rest of the market went, for example, high on price, then you'd go lower on price. When they went lower, you'd go higher. So you were kind of going opposite of the market. And it was an interesting theory. I, you know, the main thing I think you've got to figure out as an information marketer is what's truly going to make you unique. As I mentioned, we have a ton of clients in the forex space. I love the forex market, uh, but each has kind of established their own little spin, their unique niche or whatever. And the market, in many ways, Jack, is much, much, much more difficult than it was. 10 or 12 years ago. I mean, pretty much mm. back then, you could come out with any product in about any format, and since there really wasn't much in the marketplace related to that topic, people would soak it up. They'd take it, whatever it was. But now there are so many alternatives out there, it's really hard 
to establish your difference? What makes you unique? What's your, you know, why is your story different? Why should people follow you rather than, as you said, you know, going up and looking up free videos on YouTube or whatever? Because pretty much anything that you are could come up with topic-wise or niche-wise. There's free stuff out there. It's just a matter of searching around to find it. So it is definitely more challenging than ever to differentiate yourself in the market and make your story truly unique. But I would start by looking at you know what others in your niche are doing, whether they are delivering the product in terms of membership sites, books, training courses, videos. I mean, the answer is going to be any and all of the above. And you've got to figure out what you're most comfortable with in terms of what you can deliver because – if you have a oh what's the old expression? If you have the perfect face for radio, uh, you know you may not want to be a YouTube video person doing live videos. You may want to do uh, you know PowerPoint presentations where you talk over them. So there, I mean, there's kind of some weird things that might influence how you want to deliver your product. But you know, by and large, look at what the market's doing. For example, if you're coming out with a uh, a new book. And you look at on Amazon, and all the books in your niche seem to have a a blue and green color scheme. Well, that means you probably probably should have a blue and green color screen scheme for the you know the cover of your book. So you, yeah, you know you can test things and all that, but the market's kind of telling so you about what they've already bit done. Of research, what you but, do. Yeah. I think probably it's like alchemy a little bit now. Uh, we didn't have to really – I mean, stories helped. And, in, and those of us who figured out that our stories uh, had it, their own thunk factor um, when selling things in the early days, we certainly glommed onto that and used that and recognized early on that story matters and having a unique story to tell. And, and given that there are other people, there weren't as many back then, but now there certainly are. There's always somebody out there. If you're in a niche worth being in in the first place, there's probably somebody already there trying to do what you're doing. And the only thing that really differentiates you, the two of you, is what you do different and what your story is. And then people being able to picture what it would be like working with you, if it is a working with you situation, or learning from mm-hmm. you at least in consuming your material. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's, been, it's become mandatory to have a story, to be able to really engage people in a feeling and the psychology and everything that we didn't really have to deal with back in the day too much because they didn't have anything else to do. I mean, you know, you could be in a niche where there wasn't anybody yet, or really nobody is, you know, if you were just a little bit better in your presentation, or you only had to make tiny incremental changes to really out-compete somebody else. And nowadays it's uh, micro, uh, it's, it's, it's really you know, been bifurcated a thousand times over how much you can can differentiate, the tools you can use, um, the story that you can tell, and now everybody's on to that, so everybody's got a fantastic story, or at least they're trying to come up with one. And branding, you know, we never really cared or used that that much back in the day because you had a brand if you were by default the only person in the market. You know, it was just kind of like whatever that was, and nobody cared, but nowadays, you know, I used to blow that branding talk off all the time in the early years because we didn't need it. It wasn't necessary. Or it just it fabricated itself by default for the actions that you were taking and the products you were putting out and everything else. But now, man, that's just like very, very, very important. Um, 
you know, if you can be a Burchard in your in your niche or uh, a Tony Robbins or or whatever, uh, that that was a lot more attainable compared to today in the old days than it is now. Uh, for people who aren't really into this and trying to make themselves savvy about their story and and what it is that it means to learn from them, buy from them, take their consulting or whatever it might be. Yeah, I don't think about that at all. It is much more difficult, in my opinion, to achieve success as an information marketer today than it was even five years ago. And finding that hook, that angle that makes you different and a story that people really buy into and want to, you know, jump on your bandwagon is tough. I mean, it's really tough. There's nothing easy about it. They're flat out lying to you. So, um, yeah. No, it's not for the weak of heart anymore to jump into the information marketing. Space. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's the thing is maybe it's a matter of perspective too. So, uh, p- people not only change you know, how they deliver their story and how they communicate and network with people and make connections. But I think a lot of people have realized, or some people at least, the really successful ones is if you get out of the way enough to let people fill in their own story, there's nobody's story that's more important than the person who's looking to buy from you. And if you can do marketing in a way (laughs) that allows them to picture themselves as much using your product and benefiting from your product as possible, now the strongest play for me is always let them tell their own story in their head. Let them fill in the blanks. Don't fill too many blanks in lest you lose them going, that, oh, that's not me. He's using an example that doesn't even, that's not even close to what my situation is. And, uh, and sort of have like a, a copy situ- situation where it's holding a mirror up to the customer and, and letting them really feel like this is their story. And that was, of course, well, true all the way back. I mean, I'm, those guys were talking about that in the copy circles way, way back, but nobody had to listen as much as they do now to that kind of advice. Well, I think that's a great point, and right along the same lines with that, and I forget who it was. I heard us from this year. Maybe it was Mendozian, but, you know, people, if you can come up with a way when you're creating information products to involve your prospects and customers in the process, then they're far more likely to support that end product, whatever it may be. You know, a home study course, a membership site, coaching program, if they've had some involvement in the creation of that. So you definitely need to incorporate surveys and getting people involved and helping you to formulate whatever that product's going to be because if they feel vested in it because they had some involvement in the creation of the product itself, they're far more likely to have success with them being a buyer of that product. Yeah. Did we lose you? No, you did not lose me. Oh, Oh, okay. Sorry, it sounded like you cut off a little. Well, you did on my end, but I think you're still here, so. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, what kinds of things do you see in the future? What are you... What are you seeing coming down the pike uh, in terms of speaker fulfillment and, and all of that kind of stuff? We start with your business. Um, what are you excited about that's uh, coming up, things that you guys are developing, maybe uh, ways that the uh, industry is going? Um, anything you want to talk about there? Sure. Well, I mean, the core company is still certainly speaker fulfillment services, but in, in, in many ways we've kind of branched off into different things in terms of brands to support specific niches. 
So several years ago, we came out with a, a product line called Disc, which is a print-on-demand service for CDs or DVDs with a custom self-mailer, and that is going great guns. Uh, I mean, we're doing hundreds of those per day, and I guess there's a teaching point here that I want to emphasize. So I mentioned that client earlier, Jack. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah. Background I think that's I mean, Nina. <laughs> Hold on one second. Sure. I hope she's here. I think that automatically went off. <laughs> well, I know, I know what we're saying. It's really just... It is dramatic. It is. <laughs> Yeah, go ahead and I will uh, I will message her too. Oh, there. I'm there here. we go. Don't have to. <laughs> that was All great, right. Dina. So... Is that you playing? No, and I don't know why it was playing. That's really strange. I think we were we were just getting ready, and I hope Brett remembers the point because we were getting ready to just do this big finish, and it just was building dramatic. Uh, <laughs> well, know, let's do it. Emotion. <laughs> Go ahead, Brett. All right. Well, as I mentioned, we were doing the disc deliver product, and one of the clients for that is the fitness dance thing. And one of the things that people are still doing quite successfully is the free plus shipping offer. We're talking about industry trends and all that. That's still alive and well. I mean, you're probably well familiar with Russell Brunson's ClickFunnels product and all that, and tons of people mm-hmm. are using that to send out free plus shipping discs or books via our service. We're doing a lot more book fulfillment now. So we came out with a Ship Your Books brand just focused on authors and getting their book words out the door, whether it be to end customers or Amazon. Uh, We're still heavily involved with uh, Rick Fisherman and a program called Author 101 Online, where it's just about ongoing training for authors on publishing and bookmarking and all that. So we've got a lot of our hands in a lot of things, and I think the industry is still going to continue to evolve. We'll still do this. We are going to purchase equipment soon to start doing flash drives internally because most people are sourcing those out of time. just too slow. But, I mean, the industry is going to change, no doubt about it, but some things will remain tried and true. I mean, you've got to recognize the concepts of perceived value being very important. You've got to recognize that there still are so many people that want that physical component. Let me, t- let me tell you a quick story. Several years ago, oh, you remember Alexandria Brown, still a big player in the industry. So she had a product mm-hmm. she was selling for $497 for original easing course. But she decided to convert that to a digital-only product for the same $497, product, $497 price point. But she was smart. She offered as a physical upsell for six ninety seven you could still get the physical version of the course. As it turned out, eighty percent of her customers were willing to spend the extra two hundred dollars because they still wanted physical. Even a, even within the last couple of years, Mike Cage and Pam Hendrickson did a product that was a three thousand dollar digital product. They offered at an upsell the physical version for thirty five hundred dollars. So for an extra hundred dollars you could still get the physical version of the product. In their case, 40% of their customers were willing to spend an extra $500 to 
to get that physical wow. product. So even after their hard cost pushing, they put a lot more money in their pocket by having that physical. So what was even more impactful to me in that particular scenario was the effect that it had on the return rates. The people that purchased the product returned at a rate of 22%. The people that took the physical version returned at a rate of only 8%. So they had a much better stick rate by having that physical option. So if you're getting into information marketing, you at least have to test the physical aspect of things. Don't assume that digital is the only way to go because in many cases you could be leaving a lot of money on the table by only doing digital versions of your products. Wow. Man, thanks for that story because that's the kind of insight I didn't even think to ask if you would have a story like that. Of course you would. Uh, I mean, you know, people listening, you ought to really be thinking about <laughs> what Brett just talked about because that's coming from somebody who does the processing and does the work on these things who is the only person who could ever tell you those numbers. A lot of times I bet you the marketers can't even tell you the numbers who are selling this stuff as well as you can because you've just got that catbird seat, right? Well, certainly being behind the scenes, we kind of have a unique perspective. And you've know, you got to remember that when you're into the marketing space, one of the things that you're going to deal with is whether you have a hard topic or a soft topic. And that's going to impact your price point you can sell at. That's going to impact your return rates. I mean, a hard topic is typically anything on how to make money, whether it's Forex, real estate, the Internet, whatever. Well, typically a hard topic will command a higher price point. You can sell it for more. But you're also going to have to deal with a higher return rate usually. So you want to obviously employ stick factors, you know, stick strategies and other factors to hopefully get those sales to stick. But you're going to anticipate you know, a 10 15 20% return rate in some cases on hard topic products. Soft topics are things like relationships, you know, diet, food, et cetera, where it's a little more challenging in some cases to measure the results. And typically, you'll have a lower price point that can be commanded with a soft topic, but you also have a, usually a lower return rate that you have to deal with. So you've got to factor all that into the decision-making you're going to do up front for what you're going to offer, how you're going to position yourself, et cetera. Yeah. There's a lot to think about. That's why it's nice to be able to tune into a show and listen to an expert on stuff like this so you're always thinking about the right stuff because a lot of people – are carrying around really too many concerns of, of things that just don't matter to them, really, and they just don't know it from a lack of experience or it's something that they've always done a certain way. And I certainly have, uh, a, you know, a preconceived ideas of what's selling. And, and if I don't get out there and talk to guys like you enough, I could be carrying something from, you know, that hasn't worked in a year or two or longer around as one of my tools, I think, there's something else wrong with it. My content sucks or my copy must is no, no good or whatever. And a lot of times people aren't having this discussion that we had today about the things that y you find that are of really big concern to businesses. <laughs> you know, how are you, how is your product perceived, packaged, uh, delivered? All of those kinds of things really make a big deal. And then you tied it at the end to all the numbers. You know, who has a better stick rate based on who bought what? with a physical aspect or a totally digital aspect. I mean, that stuff is really, really important. It's kind of something that I've always watched people gloss over or not even really touch upon 
uh, in years past. And you, one can only imagine the amount of money that people have left on the table or people who have walked away from a great idea thinking it was their fault in another way, <laughs> that it really wasn't. The copy was fine, the offer was fine, all that stuff was fine, but they really didn't pay attention to this part of the numbers and, uh, and the craft that really is involved with it. So thank you so much for bringing all of this stuff up. That's why I got excited. I saw your name today on the show, and I'm like, oh, good, we're going to.